Thank you for listening to the Sunday School Teaching Ministry of Pastor Luke Pollock at the Home Church of Lodi, California. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. Our prayer is that this message from God's Word will renew your heart and mind today. Amen. All right. Well, good morning, everybody. Romans, God's power to transform anyone. We are in Romans chapter 13 today. So let's start this morning by getting all agitated, shall we? We're going to talk about the government. All right. (laughs) A fellow heard about an operation that would enable him to get a brain transplant. So, yeah, <laughs> he went to the hospital, and, and w- this hospital had perfected the surgery. And so he went to the doctors and said, doctors, which brains do you have in stock? <laughs> and they said, well, here's an excellent engineer's brain. It's uh, finely honed. It's, uh, it's, it's a precise gray matter in there. It'll, it'll cost you, though, $500 an ounce. Hmm, he said, all right, well, what else you got? And he said, well, here's a lawyer's brain, uh, a lot of shrewd, tricky little gray cells in there, and uh, it's $1,000 an ounce. And the guy thought about it. Is, it, is that all you have? No, they said, here's a doctor's brain, it's packed full of anatomical knowledge, and, uh, but it's $5,000 an ounce. Hmm, I don't know, do you have anything else? And he said, well, the doctors kind of looked at each other. I don't know. We, we'll show you this last one. They go over to a covered container and open it up. And they said, this is a politician's brain. But it costs $250,000 an ounce. Wow. He said, well, why, why so expensive? He said, well, in the first place, it's hardly used. <laughs> in the second place... Do you realize how many politicians it takes to get one ounce of brains? (laughs) Anyway, sorry about that. Uh, Our relationship to the government, it's it's a love-hate relationship. We love to hate them. (laughs) Romans 13 begins talking about the believer and his government. How are Christians supposed to relate to their government? and especially their governmental authorities. Frankly, I will say this morning as I'm studying through this, it, this is a tough passage for me to teach right now because I <clears throat> often feel, I'm sure like many of you do, I feel at odds with my government quite often. But I don't think my feelings are much different than the Apostle Paul's 2,000 years ago. Let me give a brief kind of historical setting to what we're about to read So 500 years before Christ, Rome was ruled by kings. But in 509 BC, that is 500 before Christ, the monarchy there was overthrown and a republic was birthed in Rome. Now, so now there were branches of government and elected officials. It was a complicated system. It had a senate and assemblies and lots of checks and balances. America's early days, we used a lot of ideas from the Roman Republic. And of course, there were all kinds of, and many years of corruption in that, and civil infighting, close to civil wars. So 482 years later, 
The Republic was overthrown. That's 27 BC, 27 years before Christ. Augustus Caesar established a brand new type of monarchy, still keeping some of the elements of the Roman Republic, but giving the Caesars a tremendous amount of power. So this was the beginning of what we call now the Roman Empire. Now that new form of government had been going on for about 60 to 70 years when Paul came on the scene and Paul was writing the book of Romans. So now you have this new form of government, this Roman Empire, and by that time, Caesar Augustus was not the king or the Caesar, but now it was Nero. Nero was emperor, and he was a man who was known for his extravagance, his indulgence, his sexual appetite, his paranoia. He always thought somebody was trying to overtake his, his place, and his financial mismanagement. He was a horrible financial manager. He later became known as one of the most violent uh, emperors toward Christians particularly. There was a major fire in Rome in 64 AD. They, some say he started it. We don't know for sure, but a few years after, so that's 64 AD. That's just only a few years after Paul wrote the book of Romans. He wrote the book of Romans probably around 58 AD. So there's a horrible king at that time, and, and after that fire, Nero blamed the fire on the Christians, and there was a huge persecution toward the believers. And not long after that, Nero was forced to flee Rome, and then he himself committed suicide. So you think about the, the, the setting, you think about the government, when Paul was writing what we're about to look at here, and you think, what was it like for Paul and other believers to be a Christian in that political and social climate. Certainly the treatment of Christians was varied from place to place, depending on which town or hamlet or village you went to, but the negative sentiment for Christians was pretty much all throughout the empire. These Christians were established, they, you know, they, uh, excuse me, they challenged the established religious um, thought, which was polytheism, many, many gods, and the thought that Caesar himself was a god, and you were supposed to worship him. Christians challenged that notion. They challenged the customs also of the day. They challenged the entertainment, the violent entertainment and wicked and immoral entertainment that was going on throughout all of the empire, particularly in those big arenas. It was pervasive. The wickedness was pervasive, and Christians would stand up and say something about it. They were, they were, Christians were accused of promoting insurrection because they taught people that we're not to bow to Caesar, we're not to bow to any human being, we're not to bow to any idols. And so that made them uh, an enemy. Uh, there were all kinds of lies and misinformation about the Christians. Apparently there were even rumors that people started that Christians committed incest and cannibalism in their groups, they called because their feasts were called love feasts, and, and they had communion, which was you know the taking of the body and the blood of Christ, and, and so they had all these lies and things they would say about them. Becoming a Christian and being a Christian in that time would potentially put you at odds with your government, with your neighbors, with people at work, with even your family, many of, many of your family members. It was not easy to be a Christian back then. When I, when I think about being a Christian back in those days and being a Christian now in America, it doesn't seem, a whole, doesn't seem too different. We're opposite to the culture in the same areas. We're opposite to the culture religiously. We're opposite to the culture, by and large, politically and socially. You name it, almost, we're, we're different. 
And if you, I think if you, if you were to throw the internet into ancient Rome, you would have pretty much a mirror image of America. So imagine for a minute you're a Christian living in ancient Rome with your family. You'd be desperately asking the question, um, how, do you re- how do we relate to our government? This is a hostile government. They're not treating us well. They, they hate us. They marginalize us. And, and of course, persecution was already started as Paul was writing this, but it would even get worse in the days to come. You would want to know, what does God say? How do I relate to them? How do I treat them? What do I do? Am I supposed to obey all these laws? Am I supposed to pay my taxes? I mean, what's going on? And that is exactly what Paul gives right here in Romans 13. These are, remember, this is to surrendered, born-again Christians. How is a surrendered, born-again Christian to relate to his government? And this word from the Lord that he's about to give is applicable to all governments in all times of history. It applies to democracies, dictatorships, communism, you name it. He did not differentiate, this is God's word. And Christians all over the world have to deal with these types of governments every single day. And this is the same passage they will read this morning and and their churches, wherever they may be, underground, wherever. And they have to obey the same things we have to obey. So here's what we see first. Number one is the command to submit to authority. Romans chapter 13, and let's look at verse 1. Let every soul, let every soul be subject unto the higher powers. For there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. So here is the command. Let every living being be subject to their higher power. Let every human be subject to their higher power. Now this verse assumes, first of all, that we we all know that God built in an authority structure. It assumes there is an authority structure. And it, it is, there is. It's a natural law. No one in the world is so independent that they don't have to submit to someone or something higher. So God says, you be subject. The word, Greek word, is hupotasso. That is to place yourself under, submit. Place yourself under the higher powers in your life. This is just a general statement of authority, actually, across the board. Now, Paul's main focus here is going to be governmental authority, but there are other realms of authority that God has established in his natural law, in his moral law, in his system. The home is a place of that structure. The church is also a place where God has established authority. Those are two of them. But here's the friction. What if your higher power, your governmental authority, stinks? (laughs) Or what if your higher authority in the home stinks or in the church stinks? Well, as Christians, we have a deep love for truth. We have a deep love for righteousness. So, placing ourselves under a wicked politician or a wicked government, human leaders, to me, when I look at it, I step back and I say, I love righteousness, I love truth. When I see that, it seems to me unwise to put myself under them. It seems unwise at best. It seems at worst, it almost seems like I would then be contributing to evil. See, earthly authorities are often immoral, they make wicked decisions and are sometimes part of the evil system that actually opposes God. So think about it. 
isn't obedience to them the same as then opposing God? If I'm just following in line with them, I'm just opposing God? Well, the answer to that is not necessarily. So does God really want us to submit to people like that? The answer is, according to this verse, generally, yes. And he gives us the key reason why we would do that. And that's number two here on the outline, the primary reason to submit to authority. And here it is. He says it in the second part of this Romans chapter 13, verse 1. There is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Again, a general statement of the natural order of things. The reason we submit to authority is because authority itself is a God-given arrangement. God wants authority. Uh, Even bad authority is better than no government, no authority. And the specific authority each person has, your specific authority that you have and me, is ordained by God. Ordained, the word there means to be placed, arranged, or appointed. Your specific authority, my specific authority, is ordained by God. Now, this is where I pull back and I say, Lord, I must admit, I, have, I struggle with this verse. I struggle. Is God really saying that every leader throughout history has been appointed by God? Nero, who burned Christians, he was ordained of God. Evil Pharaoh was ordained of God. Nebuchadnezzar was ordained of God. Hitler was ordained of God. Stalin was ordained of God. Putin (laughs) is ordained of God. Biden is ordained of God. Newsom, Pelosi. (laughs) Sorry. Did God really put them? (laughs) Did God really put them in their seat of authority? The answer, according to this verse, is yes. God did. And this is where we as believers have to simply trust in the sovereignty and the wisdom of God. We have to say, Lord, I may never understand that this side of heaven, but these wicked leaders are serving God's purposes whether they mean to or not. (laughs) It's one of those mysteries of God's sovereignty and man's free will coexisting. See, God somehow works through evil dictators. He works through democracies. He works through dynasties to bring about his desired result. Now, we saw that in Romans chapter 9. Paul brought that up. Paul mentions Pharaoh, who was lifted up as the king. God lifted him up. Why? For God's wrathful purposes. Another great biblical example of this is the birth story of Jesus. Think about it. Caesar Augustus, think about this. Caesar Augustus called for a census, a tax. I'm sure many were angry about that decision. I probably would have been on the front line saying, no, we oppose this tax. We oppose this tax. But God was working behind the scene with that tax and that census because he needed Joseph to get from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Joseph and Mary traveled to Bethlehem at just, on just the right night when she would have Jesus. And that's how God used them to get there through a governmental authority, a wicked governmental authority's uh, tax law. This boggles my mind. How God can use a governmental decision to bring his word to pass, even taxes. (laughs) So this is why we must put ourselves under the laws of the land. 
Because no matter how bad it gets, ultimately God is still in control. So what does that mean in regard to going against our government? Is there a time for that? And now here's number three, the secondary reason to submit to authority. We're going to talk about that, but the secondary reason. So there's a primary reason, that is that God is in control, and God has placed that, or has ordained those authorities. But then there's another reason, verse 2. Whosoever, therefore, resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God. And they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. So the Greek word for resist is antitasso. It means to range in battle against. So going to battle against the powers that God has set up is actually opposing God himself. And God, as it says here, will let you get what's coming to you if you disobey. You'll receive them, you'll, they'll receive themselves damnation, the punishment for breaking the laws of the land. Now this brings up a lot of questions now. But before we get to those questions real quick, I want to say the obvious and just basic application of this, of this whole passage right here is that we should all be good citizens. I mean, that's, that's what God's saying here. That's the understanding. We should be the kinds of people who obey the laws of the land. We should stop at red lights, don't rob banks, you know, follow building codes. Just be a good citizen. Follow the law. That's how we should be. It's almost never right to disobey the laws of the land. It's just almost never right. And thankfully, in America, we have a system that allows for resisting our government in certain lawful ways. There are lawful ways to fight against a law or a lawmaker, and you're well within your rights to do that. And I believe we can and we should do that. I, you know, in a sense, we are the government here in America. And so if we don't participate, then we are shirking our responsibility in this whole thing. And we're to blame for a lot of what's going on. But here's what we all want to know when we read this, basically. Once something is a law, is there ever a time for civil disobedience? Is there ever a time that I can disobey the law under God's uh, laws and, be okay, and God be okay with that? The scriptural answer is certainly yes. There, there are times for that, absolutely. And we have quite a few biblical examples for that. Moses, he defied Pharaoh, the law of the land, in taking the people out of Egypt. The Hebrew midwives there were ordered to kill the babies that were born, and they did not. And they uh, even hid it from, from the governmental authorities. And God um, God was, spoke favorably about that. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they refused the law to bow down to Nebuchadnezzar's idol, and they were thrown into the fire for it, but they refused. Daniel disobeyed the law of the land that said you cannot pray to anyone uh, but uh, the leader. Peter, John, and Paul, and pretty much all the apostles went against the authorities telling them not to preach. Do not preach, and they went against that. And, this, and that last issue right there in the New Testament was where we get the amazing statement in Acts chapter 5 and verse 29. Peter said, we must obey God rather than men. So that is the balancing truth to what we're talking about today. There may be times where we, we must follow a higher power. We must obey God rather than men. Now, discerning the t right time to do that is our challenge. And it's tough at times 
to know when to do this and when not to do this. And it's really subjective often. We have to really take this to the Lord. For example, the, Mer the American Revolution. Now, don't stone me for this. But the choice back then to defy England was a very hotly debated topic among good Bible-believing Christians then. There were good people on both sides that were saying, listen, it is not biblical to go against England. Others saying it is biblical because of what they have done and how uh, things they're doing. I'll admit, it is, when I look into that deeply, it is very difficult to draw a very straight line on that. But as with many things, I think the, the, the reality is what we have to do is be fully persuaded in our own heart, in our own mind. What is my conscience? What is Scripture telling me? And I'm going to go with that. One thing is for sure, God has used America for His glory throughout the world. There's no doubt about it. Amen. So sometimes it might be very difficult to know what to do. Other times, it's clear. It's very clear. <laughs> Pastor Mike, uh, who will be here in the summer, Lord willing, he goes to India frequently. And he goes to places in India where they have anti-conversion laws. You're not allowed to preach the gospel. You're not allowed to hand out gospel tracts. Pastor Mike does those things. He's breaking the law of the land, technically, by giving someone a tract or preaching to them. But he, we must, it's the exact same thing Peter and John were doing in the book of Acts, and Peter said we must obey God rather than men. There are underground churches in countries all over the world right now, China included. These dear believers are breaking the law every single Sunday when they get together or any time they meet together. But they continue on. They keep doing it every, every Sunday. What we see in the civil disobedience, about civil disobedience in Scripture is this, that the if the government orders the believer to do something God has told him not to do or to stop doing something that God has told him to do, that's when it's okay. Here are the general understanding of this. I have it up here for you. A Christian must disobey his government when it asks him to, number one, violate a commandment of God, number two, commit an immoral or unethical act, or number three, go against his Christian conscience, and by that we mean a conscience that is informed by Scripture and is in submission to the Spirit of God. That's a general understanding. That's what most believers will accept, and I, I believe that's the truth. Now, so these may be the times when civil disobedience is allowed by God, and even God wants us to. But here's what we need to remember in all of this. Uh, we have a valid reason to disobey, our, and our valid reason to disobey does not erase the punishment that we may receive. Amen. As it says here, they that resist will receive the damnation or the punishment. So, if we decide that we're going to disobey our government because of what we know God has told us to do, then don't be surprised if the arrows fly. And don't be surprised if you find yourself being punished. That's how this will work. You know, I've read this passage for years, and I even did an essay on this in Romans 13 and civil disobedience and how they uh, correlate in Bible college. That was one of my papers. But frankly, I, even back then and coming up to a few years ago, I really thought, man, this is never something we'd actually have to worry about here. Uh, <laughs> civil disobedience or even, and much less punishment, <laughs> that they would actually punish you for doing something for the Lord. But I will say, 2020 changed everything in my head. When they unjustly shut down churches uh, while keeping everything else open, we, we had a decision to make as a church. And I remember seriously in 2020, 
seriously considering the possibility of jail time. If you go back then, you don't, we didn't know for sure how this was all going to play out. There was no, there was no guidebook. No, nobody had gone before us on this. We didn't quite know how this was all going to play out. And then there, after we, st- we met one or two Sundays and I got a phone call that said somebody called the police on your church because you're meeting. And so, and, uh, and so it was being transferred to the, uh, the sheriff's department. I didn't know how the sheriff's going to react. Nobody quite knew at that moment what was going to happen. And uh, we even called an attorney and just said, you know, hey, what, uh, what do you suggest we do? How, how do we navigate this? And... I had to prepare myself, at least mentally and in my heart, for whatever might happen. You know, could a raid happen on Sunday? We're meeting together. And, but I, I, was, I remember just thinking, okay, Lord, this is what we are doing. And I, th- everything changed in my head. This is very much a possibility in this country. And we are at that place. And all they have to do is say, you can't, you, that's hate speech or, or, you're, or, or whatever, or, the, or based on uh, medical reasons, we're shutting you down, whatever. And we as, and, but I was so grateful as we did that and we kept going, the Lord protected us. And then as a church, everybody started showing up and, you, and just the brave people, the courageous people of this church. I was so impressed with people's courage week after week. And I think you'll agree with me. The way things feel right now, Christians are gonna have to face this choice more and more and maybe even a punishment. But, here's, but if we don't obey God rather than men, if we don't do that, then no one else will. There's no one else on this earth who's going to do it other than the believers, other than Christians. By the way, this goes for husbands. This is just for somebody maybe here. This goes for husbands, parents, bosses, or any other authority as well. If they are commanding you to do things that God says are wrong, you do not have to obey. Just know that there will be consequences. Another couple quick applications I want to make as we go through this real fast. Resisting our government does not mean that we can never preach against the government's actions. That's not what that means. Many of the prophets in Scripture did this. I mean many, including John the Baptist. So that is totally within what God would want. And resisting also does not mean that we can't run from persecution. God may want us to run. As a matter of fact, Joseph, Mary, and Jesus ran to Egypt during a time of persecution. They took him to Egypt for his protection and their protection. And again, God used that running uh, to fulfill prophecy. And so we know that God, if, if there may be a time where we can't stick around because we're going to get killed. It's okay to get out of there. But as we come back to Romans 13 here, when we think about Paul living under the rule of Nero, Paul, he knew that even a wicked government is better than no government, anarchy. The, and if, by the way, think about Jewish history in this. The worst days of Jewish history were the book of Judges. What, what does it say in the book of Judges? Everyone did that which was right in his own eyes. That's horrible. That's worse. So we don't want that. Now here is why. Number four, the purpose of authority's power. Verses three to four. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid. For he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God, a revenger, to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. 
So God gives us government's key role here, and that is to restrain evil through, pun through punishment. If a government could just keep this in mind, they would be a lot better off. <laughs> they could just spend the money in that way. We would be better off. By the way, people use that phrase, uh, you've probably heard it before, you can't legislate morality. Um, are you kidding me? Actually, that's exactly what the government is supposed to do. I mean, in fact, that's what every government in the world already does. Laws about theft, murder, assault, these are all legislating morality. And we just need to stick closer to God's morality and not man's version of morality. So verse 4, though, says, He, that is the government, Caesar, the king, whoever your government is, is the minister, or anybody part of that system, is the minister, or the word is servant, of God. How is he the servant of God? <laughs> By restricting and punishing evil. They are doing God's work when they execute wrath on the evildoers. That is their duty, that is their job, and they're serving God's purposes when they do that. When they keep the peace, they're executing proper punishment of evil. So Paul is saying, if you keep good behavior and obey the laws, then typically you're going to get praised for doing so. You have a lot better life. As believers, as Christians, you'll be free to do what you want and um, have, a, have a good life. There should be no fear that they're going to come get you and punish you for the wrong reasons because you're being an idiot and doing bad things. A good life is more peaceful, and it's a more rewarded life. So just obey the laws. That's what he's saying. But evil behavior, harming others, hurting people, disobeying the laws results in punishment. You disobey the laws of the land, you, you should live in fear. Notice verse 4 mentions the sword. Now that's a reference to capital punishment. Swords, you know, a sword back in Roman days uh, wasn't for, you know, giving people a spanking. That's not what that was about. It was about beheading. Beheading was the typical form of capital punishment. You know, they saved crucifixion for the lowest of the low and when they wanted to produce the most amount of pain. That's why Jesus was crucified. But typical capital punishment is beheading. So Paul is actually upholding capital punishment here. Because it's a biblical concept. God established that. The government has the God-ordained right to take a life, if necessary, for the good of society. And they are doing this as a servant of God. They're taking care of God's purposes. Now, on this note, real quick, as we talk about law enforcement and all of this, again, I have to, I have to just say thank you to all of the ministers and the servants here in this church and all of you law enforcers that do what you do in this way for your part in this whole system. I have never been more thankful than lately seeing the body cam video from all these mass shootings and they, you watch those and those guys running into danger when everyone is running out and firing when people are firing at them. Listen, that's amazing bravery and courage, and these people are keeping us safe by executing wrath on the evildoers. And in those cases, they are servant of God, helping all of us by doing that. That is executing wrath on evildoers. Amen. Thank the Lord for many people that keep us safe. Uh, we, we would not be safe without them. And that goes for the military as well. Thank you. Verse 5 in Paul's summary statement here. As is his, his summary statement on all these verse, first four verses, look at what he says. Wherefore, 
You must needs be subject. Hupatasso, put yourself under them. Not only for wrath, but for conscience sake. Not only because you could get punished, but also for your conscience sake. A Christian's motivation for obedience is different from all others. It's not simply based on fear that we obey the laws, uh, but it's also our love for good. That's why we obey the laws. That's why we do what we're supposed to do as good citizens. We have a conscience that is ruled by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is in there and he's telling us, obey. Obey simply because it's the right thing to do. It's what God wants us to do. It's what Jesus would do. And, do, and, and because you care about your fellow citizens. Treat them with respect. You know, don't, don't get all mad about your neighbor and don't, you know, just, do, just obey the laws. But, you know, it's also for the gospel's sake. Yeah. And that's why our conscience, I think, would bother us in a big way as well. We obey for the, for the gospel's sake. Because if we're always disobeying the laws, if we're a rabble-rouser, if we're always being cruel and disobeying what we're supposed to obey, how can we be an effective witness for Christ? How can we stand up with authority and say what's right and what's wrong if we're not willing to obey the, the laws? You know, we're all, a Christian that follows the laws is always a more effective uh, Christian. Here's what Peter said on this in 1 Peter chapter 2. Listen to his words. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme or unto governors, as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. Listen to this now, verse 15. For so is the will of God that with well-doing ye may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men as free and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God. Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Remember, Nero was the king at this time when Peter said this. And he says, honor the king. We do this for a greater cause. We don't just do it for the king. We do it for the king of kings. It's the cause of Christ to make his name greater by silencing the foolish talkers. See, there are so many people that are saying so many things about Christians right now. They're saying we're haters. They're saying all kinds of bad stuff about Christians. But we need to be the best citizens that we could possibly be so that we could put them to silence. That means we obey the building laws. We obey the financial laws. We obey business laws. We obey traffic laws. We even obey tax laws. And interesting, Paul here would bring up the conscience, or for conscience sake in verse 5, right before talking about paying taxes. <laughs> and that's what we look at lastly here. Look at verse 6. For this cause pay ye tribute also. For they are God's ministers, attending continually upon this very thing. Render therefore to all their dues, tribute to whom tribute is due, that is taxes, Custom to whom custom, another type of tax. Fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. So this is, number five, the practical support of authority. You know, imagine being a Christian in Rome and hearing about these wild and lavish parties that Nero would throw. Um, you hear He's throwing these parties. He's inviting people, just absolute decadence every day. And then... The laws come down and they start demanding more tax money to fund his lifestyle. 
you have to pay for Nero's lifestyle. And you already have taxes upon taxes on everything. Then your pastor, you go to church on Sunday, you're in Rome, and your pastor gets up, and he opens a letter, and he says, hey, listen, we just got this letter from the Apostle Paul. I'm going to read this to you, this par- portion, Romans chapter 13, verse, verse uh, 6 and 7. Pay ye tribute, pay your taxes. I can feel a lot of people just groaning. No, it can't be. Next time Paul comes through here, I'm going to debate with that guy. I'm going to have a chat with him and see if that's really what God said. Listen, taxes are a touchy subject. I would tell you personally, I have never, I've, I didn't struggle a lot before, but it was recently when I read what our governor uh, put into place. He, he formed a commission to study abortion and how we as a state could further and push our abortion uh, so, so that people could come all over America to California and have their abortions. And he had, they came up with, I forget how many things, like 40 things almost or something like that, ways we could help booster our abortion. I started reading through those and my, my heart just went into my stomach and in my head I was so struggling. Lord, I do not want to buy another thing in California. I do not want to send any kind of sales tax to this state. I don't want to give any kind of income tax or I I just don't even want to give any of my money to this place. When when I thought of that, I was thinking my tax money, but, but maybe that's what we have to keep in mind. When I look at this, I realize it's not my money. It's not. Look at what it says, repeating the words of Jesus. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's. It's already his, according to God's view. If he has a tax, if it's Caesar's, then give it to him. And so if we do what God says, then we're not taking part in the immorality by giving it to him. Nero is just as immoral as our governor or more. And so when he said, render to Caesar what Caesar's, it's the same thing. It's not only taxes, but he says here, honor and fear. Give honor to whom honor, fear to whom fear. Now, that means there is a certain amount of honor and reverence that are due to our authorities because of their office. So let me just throw out a reminder to all of us. It's so easy to get caught up in this. Be careful about what you say. Be careful about how much you dishonor them in front of others especially. We can certainly talk about politics. We can certainly talk about policies. And even the politicians themselves, that's not... That's not, uh, we can still do that and retain honor, do honor and fear, I think. But we have to do that. Ray Steadman, a great old preacher, he was talking about taxes and he said, you know, my, here's what he, his words are as we close here. My income had been so low for a long time that I didn't have to pay any taxes. But gradually it caught up and I finally had to pay. I remember how I resented it. In fact, when I sent my tax form in, I addressed it to the infernal (laughs) revenue service. (laughs) They never answered, (laughs) although they did accept the money. The next year, I had improved my attitude a bit. I addressed it to the eternal revenue service, but I have repented from all those sins, (laughs) and I now hope to pay my taxes cheerfully. (laughs) I have a similar sentiment to that. Lord, Help me learn to pay the taxes in a cheerful attitude 
and give honor and obedience where I need to cheerfully, but also know when and have the discernment to know when and how to stand up for righteousness in a bold way. And, and not to be a pushover, but Lord, to just say, Lord, I am, we will stand and we will stand strong for righteousness. And let's keep doing that. And that, should, I think, should be our prayer. Lord, we love you. We, we hope you. you enjoyed listening to the preaching and teaching from God's Word today. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. From all of us here at The Home Church in Lodi, California, Thank you for joining us.